This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Term, the very term emergence was introduced or reinvented by philosophers. Uh, and then some of the scientists uh, like, some other dislike it. Uh, but then the difficult task that philosophers have uh, after reintroducing this term is to make sense of what is being made of this term by others. Uh, because philosophy is this branch of knowledge where we try to uh, provide uh, more, most general uh, definitions. So in what I uh, would present here, uh, so I, what I would have here or present here, it will be... Um, I will try to show how difficult it is for philosophers uh, of science, uh, I will speak from the point of view of more contemporary analytic metaphysics, how difficult it is to uh, provide a unified and uh, univocal definition of emergence and what are the difficulties that we encounter on the way. And then I will also try to show how the categories that are important for us, classical uh, uh, philosophers and uh, more philosophers than theologians, those categories that are, were mentioned by Father Thomas on the first day, how they actually re-enter the, conversa the conversation today, precisely in this context of the theory of uh, emergence, and what are difficulties and complexities of this uh, return to those classical uh, terms. So, first, emergence. Uh, uh, the, the simple definition that uh, uh, analytic philosophy provides, an example of a definition, uh, would be this. Emergence denotes a wide variety of phenomena where new processes, interactions, entities, and properties are claimed to be observed, characteristic for higher levels of complexity of matter, and irreducible to their lower-level constituents. Note that uh, from the beginning, uh, we can see the great difficulty that is out there. What are emergents? Already in this definition, we uh, learn about processes, interactions, entities, properties. So we can see that already here, it's very difficult for us actually to say what are emergence and therefore what emergence uh, is uh, as such. So those emergence, uh, we have uh, heard uh, over those last uh, two days and also today, uh, that we can observe them uh, in physical uh, and uh, chemical uh, sciences, so uh, we may speak about physical and chemical phenomena as being emergent. Uh, today we've uh, heard uh, more about biological phenomena, yes, individual cell life, organic life, but also collective behavior, which was not addressed, and uh, entire eco ecological systems, or actually these were addressed by uh, Mark because he mentioned about those uh, ever-growing circles. But we also uh, may speak about emer emergence at yet higher level of complexity uh, of uh, matter and uh, phenomena uh, in uh, the reality that surrounds us. So human mind, consciousness, uh, organizational tendencies uh, that characterize entire group of people, groups of people, economic patterns, uh, social uh, patterns, world wide web, and uh, all complex phenomena that we uh, can uh, see around us. So these are all emergents. Now, as I said, uh, uh, the term was uh, reinvented in late 19th century uh, in philosophy. Then it came back uh, in the early 20th century, specifically uh, within the conversation which was uh, offering uh, neo-vitalism on the one hand, and eliminativism on the other, uh, uh, on the other extreme, because this is the uh, uh, origin of uh, logical positivism. So emergence was uh, thought as something that can actually uh, be a middle ground, but then it was rejected uh, by logical positivists, uh, and then it comes back in the second half of the twentieth century. So um, this is just uh, these are more important figures. Uh, you can learn more about them. Um, from the article I gave you or from my uh, book as well. Now, trying uh, to characterize emergence, uh, philosophers, contemporary philosophers, they list, uh, there are several um, attempts, uh, uh, major, I would say, because there are, there's many attempts, but there's several lists of uh, characteristics of emergence offered by various philosophers. This is one 
uh, that I uh, uh, construed uh, for the uh, purpose of uh, well my research and then uh, several talks that I gave on uh, emergence. There's no time for us to go through all uh, these uh, uh, characteristics, but I would like to emphasize uh, three of them. Uh, so the first one is... Uh, a difficult problem that all who support emergence theory in philosophy have. What's the problem? So uh, on the one hand, uh, they would like to remain uh, monists, uh, ontological monists, uh, or um, uh, they oftentimes call themselves emergentist monists. So uh, what does that mean? They, uh, so on the one hand, they would like to claim that at the end of the day, all individuals are constituted by or identical to microphysical individuals and all properties are in fact realized by or identical to microphysical properties in one way and yet in another way or on the other hand they claim that we do need to acknowledge the novelty of qualitative difference of emergent properties which cannot be instantiated simply by quantitative accumulation of the basic constituents. So they, in a way, from a philosophical point of view, they want to have the cake and eat it. Uh, so once again, on the one hand, they claim that emergents are irreducible, but on the other hand, uh, they claim that emergence is still a variation of physicalism, and therefore they, uh, many of them, they like to classify themselves as non-reductionist physicalists. And then the question obviously comes whether it is plausible at all, this category, because physicalism by definition is reductionist, but they claim you can have a non-reductionist uh, physicalism. Uh, so they want to be non-reductionist uh, about uh, emergence, and therefore they claim that emergence escapes uh, at least three major uh, theories of uh, reductionism uh, of uh, phenomena, but also maybe even entire uh, branches of science that were proposed by uh, Ernst Nagel, uh, a famous philosopher of science, who claims that maybe it's possible that uh, that there are theories that can easily be uh, reduced to lower level theories, scientific theories. Uh, and when is, when is that possible? When a reducing theory makes predictions that are perfectly or almost perfectly, uh, they almost perfectly match the predictions of the reduced uh, theory. So emergence escapes this, uh, such is the claim. Uh, Nagel uh, says that sometimes Actually, oftentimes, the reductionist program uh, doesn't work as easily as this. Uh, and therefore, you need what he calls bridge laws. Uh, they are necessary to uh, work out this reductionist program. So maybe we could take an example of biology. You cannot go straight to chemistry. You have to have uh, biochemistry on the way. Or from chemistry to physics, you have to have uh, physical chemistry. And then uh, another important philosopher of mind, but he's uh, important for emergent, emergence theory, um, very much important for emergence theory, Jagewon Kim, uh, who proposes uh, another uh, reductionist uh, program uh, in, uh, that would apply to natural science, uh, where he says that a property E is reducible to, the, to lower properties of the same system as on, if and only if it can be functionalized uh, or that is construed or reconstrued as a property defined by its causal or, or nomic relations uh, to the property uh, of a different type uh, on the lower level that instantiates it. So emergentists, they claim that uh, emergence uh, or emergent phenomena uh, escape all those possible ways of uh, uh, reductionism uh, in science. So the claim, therefore, is that you need uh, higher uh, or different sciences to give an account of uh, those uh, emergent uh, properties, entities, processes, or whatnot. Uh, and yet, at the same time, I emphasize it once again, they claim uh, we want to remain within the scientific uh, camp, and we agree with scientists that at the end of the day, everything is uh, in one way or the other uh, physical. So phys physicists should like them. 
I guess. Now, the, the most complex and the most uh, difficult debate in, emergence, uh, in, in the theory of emergence in philosophy is the distinction between epistemological and ontological uh, or strong emergence. So there are those who claim that emergence is simply an outcome of limitations of our human cognition. Uh, analytic skills, knowledge, and understanding. Uh, and therefore, these are not uh, unsurpassable limitations, so therefore emergence uh, and emergence are, at the end of the day, reducible, and therefore, uh, as science progresses, we will uh, explain everything actually on the lower levels of explanation. Uh, Interestingly, others claim that emergent phenomena belong to the fabric of the universe and they are intrinsically uh, radically irreducible. Now, then the difficult question comes, so what makes them to be uh, irreduce, uh, uh, radically and intrinsically irreducible? Uh, here we have several, at least three major strategies of uh, defining what makes emergence uh, irreducible. The most important one on which I will spend most of the time today is downward causation-based uh, ontological emergence. There is also whole part constraints-based uh, ontological emergence and supervenience-based ontological emergence. These are, uh, uh, I think, weaker theories. Uh, in one way or the other, so let's just concentrate for the purpose of this talk on downward causation-based ontological emergence. Now, the claim is uh, this. We have, uh, again, lower and higher level of complexity. Uh, we have bottom-up causation and we have downward causation. You have heard uh, many times already those uh, categories here. But what is important and what is being emphasized is that once something emerges, both higher and lower level, uh, there's no preference for any of them. We may be fascinated with the higher level, but some of you, I mean, we have scientists from, of, from different like branches here, so some of you are actually, actually interested in those lower levels and you are fascinated with, but usually people are fascinated more with, the, uh, uh, with higher levels of complexity. But the claim is that they are, uh, uh, there's no preference here. Uh, both levels uh, are important and both levels are in, uh, some sort of synergy and those causes that operate upward and downward in are in a sort of synergy. So those levels explain uh, each other simultaneously uh, uh, and they need each other uh, in, a, in the same way, uh, uh, one might say, from a philosophical uh, at least point of view. So what is crucial here and what is the subject of um, of research for from a philosophical point of view is this notion of downward causation. Uh, so uh, Jagwon Kim, uh, who is actually against this uh, uh, notion, but he uh, describes it and uh, says that uh, at least this is the claim that many emergentists make is again, emergent properties have causal powers of their own and these are novel causal powers irreducible to causal powers of their basal constituents. Now, here's the difficulty. If we have a cause, uh, philosophically speaking, uh, I mean, uh, causation, I'm sorry, there needs to be a cause and there needs to, so the agent and something that is being affected by causation. So in my research, I went through um, numerous papers and publications on emergence and I was looking specifically uh, on this, uh, I mean, on several aspects of, uh, of downward causation. First, what is, what is actually doing this uh, causal uh, work uh, in downward causation? So you can see from this, uh, from this table, uh, from this chart, that uh, we have various uh, possible um, candidates. Uh, some speak that uh, general principles, regularities, or laws exercise downward causation. Others say, no, these are boundary conditions, context-sensitive constraints, or patterns of organizations. Those who are process-oriented philosophers claim that processes uh, exercise causation. And eventually, there are those who uh, describe emergence and downward causation in a way that it seems that actually there are emergent 
entities. There's a need for a new type of entity that is a cause. Then what is being uh, acted upon in downward causation? Again, uh, a whole uh, variety of answers. Some uh, would say that these are some sort of lower level entities. Others would say not necessarily entities, but just properties of things, or maybe events that uh, operate uh, or happen on the lower level of uh, complexity. And there are some mixed answers to the question, for example, those who claim that these are lower level entities, uh, events and substances uh, that maybe participate in them. So that shows us how difficult it is to specify uh, if we speak about causation, what is the cause and what is being acted upon? A similar difficulty uh, is, uh, we encounter a similar difficulty when we think about the very nature of downward causation. Uh, so uh, we need to remember uh, that uh, after the rejection of uh, the fourfold notion of causation that we uh, spoke about, or it was mentioned, uh, I believe, yesterday, uh, after the rejection of um, fourfold notion of causation, what was left, if anything was left, let's leave uh, aside Hume, who claims that everything just uh, is just protection of our uh, of our uh, mind. Let's say if there is causation, uh, this causation is efficient causation. Uh, that is interactions that are traceable um, with empirical um, sciences and with empirical uh, investigation. So. If downward causation is defined as another higher level or higher type of still efficient causation, then the causal closure or, of physics is retained. And this is something that uh, contemporary emer emergence would like uh, to, uh, to see. But then irreducibly, irreducibility is endangered. If this is another type of efficient cause, so maybe at the end of the day, this efficient cause is actually reducible to efficient causes that work on the lower level of complexity. But so if, on the other hand, if we define downward causation as a non-efficient cause, now the difficulty would be that the causal closure of physics seems to be violated. At least this is the claim that is made by contemporary emergent uh, theor uh, theoreti theoreticians. But then irreducibility uh, is either introduced or retained because this is really a new type of causation. So maybe, in fact, that makes it or emergence to be irreducible. So Kim uh, proposed, this is uh, probably the only one diagram I have. Others had fancy diagrams and pictures and whatnot. Uh, so uh, Kim uh, proposes, this is his famous argument, uh, the argument uh, of causal exclu uh, exclusion. So we have this upper level, which is an emergent level, and I uh, explain it on the example of pain and escape reaction. So an emergentist would uh, like causation to happen on this higher level uh, of this diagram. So we have pain, and then we have uh, the escape uh, reaction. But Kim says, right, but uh, these are if these are emergent properties or phenomena, they have a lower level uh, base. And in this case, that would be a neural base or neural states, N1 and N2. And he says causation also happens there. So in fact, when neural state N2 happens, uh, then we have the escape reaction. So uh, you can probably actually, uh, you know, cause this in like uh, in your brain, uh, uh, like make this neural state to occur, and then you would have the escape reaction. So he claims that the only way uh, to save the claim that causation, if causation, he adds and says, if causation is nomological uh, at this lower level, uh, a nomological uh, relation uh, uh, of sufficiency between those neural states, then uh, the only one way for us to save the claim that something actually Causal, causally happens on this higher level and not every, and everything is not reduced to the lower level is to claim that we have this downward causation which goes from P to N2. So that N2 is uh, also uh, caused uh, through this uh, downward causation that works from the higher level of complexity. But then he claims if this is the case, uh, we have the problem because N2 is simply over determined. Uh, uh, determined. We have the same phenomenon, uh, phenomenon that is simultaneously caused by two 
causes in, well, I would add to, he doesn't say that, but uh, this is the way he understands downward causation because he works within the framework of contemporary science. That would be for him another type of efficient cause. So he, he, that would be the difficulty here. Uh, the same thing is caused uh, at the same time in the same way by two uh, causes. So there's a never-ending uh, conversation on this argument uh, because some claim that if it is successful, it affects not only philosophy of mind, but you can refer it to any uh, levels of complexity and then uh, you would actually... Uh, that would be uh, his... Uh, um, theory of uh, reduction uh, of levels of complexity in our uh, description of them. Uh, so the general difficulty, therefore, would be this. How do you reconcile physical monism and ontological novelty of emergence and physical causal closure, where the claim is that all causation is efficient causation and physical causation, and irreducibility of emergence? So uh, noting, uh, uh, noticing those difficulties Kim will say that non-reductionist physicalism is wrong. Its ontology, ontology is physicalistic, but its uh, ideology is dualistic, and it is ideology. Uh, well, uh, another thinker, uh, Menno Hulsfeld, uh, he says this, the concept of downward causation is muddled with regard to meaning of causation and fuzzy with regard to what it is that respectively causes and is caused within downward causation. So, but uh, after... I mean, knowing about those difficulties, uh, mm, gradually, uh, already a group of philosophers of science would uh, claim that what we are dealing with, or maybe what we should do here, is to think about causation in a broader way. So uh, Klaus Emeke, uh, I believe from Netherlands, and he has another entire, at that point, entire group of philosophers working and scientists working with him. So he suggests that downward causation does not involve only the idea of strict, efficient temporal causality, but also uh, uh, we may speak, or maybe we should reintroduce uh, in the control of the part by the whole, uh, a kind of functional or teleological causation or even formal causation. This, those terms have been used here in this uh, room uh, and the other room that we were in many times uh, over this conference, but these are not terms that many uh, philosoph philosophers of science would like. So this is courageous to say something like that. Uh, mm, and then uh, again, he says there is a place for rational concept of downward causation, but only with a broader framework of causal explanation. Uh, and then... Uh, the notion of causality should be therefore enlarged. Uh, another example is Michael uh, Silberstein, uh, who says we have to go beyond efficient causation to teleological causation and Aristotle's final and formal causes. Uh, Spanish uh, mm, philosophers of science, uh, similar claim, uh, speaking about biological systems, we should introduce a new type of causation, which is formal in a sense that it infuses forms. It mater materially restructures uh, matter according to a form. And then uh, one last example, uh, we should speak about the entanglement of matter and form and functional causation. It, that sounds promising and the Thomists should say, well, that, that's wonderful, let's go with it. But I read all those papers and none of them actually goes in depth trying to say what they understand by form today. And this is the greatest challenge also for us, Thomas, who, uh, if, we want to, uh, if we want to go back or reintroduce those categories in philosophy of science. So, uh, but we are not lost here. Uh, actually, we are, but uh, let's say we are not. Uh, <laughs> because uh, within contemporary philosophy of science, we actually have uh, a number of uh, philosophers who are in favor of reintroducing those categories of form and uh, especially substantial form, uh, but it's like a separate research. It's interesting that uh, I did not see the connection between uh, those two sets of uh, philosophers, those that I've mentioned uh, a few minutes ago and those that I will mention right now. But here we have, as you can see already, several um, ways in which form uh, is being understood today uh, in analytic uh, uh, philosophy of science. So, for example, uh, oh, the, the major ones, I listed them, there's probably more of them. Uh, so, there are those who claim that uh, 
formal aspect is simply, or maybe not simply, but just structure, organization, arrangement, order, or configuration of physical uh, matter. Okay, uh, and they claim, uh, uh, Catherine Koslitsky is, uh, is one example, that those this form form is a proper part of the object. And it will be a, uni a universal for her, so it can be instantiated in similar way in many cases. Uh, another uh, philo contemporary philosopher, William uh, Jaworski, uh, he claims uh, that, again, uh, form is a certain structure that is realized or manifested in material aspects of the object, so that would be the structural uh, notion of uh, substantial form. Uh, he, unlike uh, Koslitsky, claims that it's not a proper part of the object, it's a separ separate uh, philosophical uh, category, and for him forms, structures are tropes, are, are always particulars, so you cannot repeat them. Uh, then we have those uh, who hold the relational version of hylomorphism uh, and of substantial form, where form is being defined as relation that holds between material components of a complex object. So, so it's not a concentration on structure, but on maybe more dynamic uh, um, uh, view of relations that happen or occur in complex uh, phenomena or objects. Uh, so some of them, like Kit uh, uh, Fine, would uh, say that uh, this form, such understood, is a proper part of the object, but part of a different sort, not like a, a physical part, but philosophically speaking or metaphysically speaking, another uh, part of uh, an entity, a uh, complex entity. Uh, and for him, forms would be trope-like uh, particulars. But there are others, like Mark Johnson, who, again, uh, supports relationalism in terms of understanding of form, but he claims that it is not a proper part of the object, and it is a. So you can see that they may vary on uh, several aspects uh, of uh, how we understand those forms, but uh, they agree that form is a relation. The third uh, proposition that was made is that matter and form are actually incomplete entities. So they are. Uh, you can envision them or think them as separate entities that are imperfect or incomplete. Uh, and then when they come together, we may speak about sat the saturation of those entities in the hylomorphic composition, which, uh, at least for Edward Jonathan Love, is uh, always uh, a trope-like particular. Uh, another thinker... Uh, 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 claims Barnes, Jordan or Gordon, how do I pronounce him? Gordon, thank you. Uh, Barnes, uh, he says that uh, he supports the same uh, uh, idea that these are incomplete entities, uh, but uh, he uh, spends more time on, on mother here, and uh, he defies mother as, uh, as consisting of complex substance-independent elementary particles, and he doesn't, he specifically argues accepting substantial form, he specifically and openly argues against the idea of virtual presence. He accepts the idea that there can be more than one form that actualizes the same parcel uh, of matter. The most interesting uh, thinker in this uh, camp of contemporary uh, hylomorphists, I think, is Anna uh, Marmodoro, uh, an Italian philosopher uh, who works also uh, in the UK. She claims that composite objects have material and formal aspects, but for her form is what is a unifying principle that uh, re-identifies parts. And the re-identified parts have no distinctness in the substance. They exist in it holistically. So she would argue that this is an operation on the elements of a substance, stripping them of their distinctness rather than just an item in ontology. So you can see that she goes against both structuralists and uh, relational, uh, relationalists. Uh, so the question that we should ask here, I think coming from the classical uh, perspective, is whether this re-identification of still for her physical, tangible matter is substantial change or not. Uh, so it's interesting that from my perspective, she gets as close as uh, as 
any other of uh, those philosophers who speak about hylomorphism today to the concept of actually substantial change, but she doesn't use this language. And I think she does it for that purpose because already what she does, again, is very controversial uh, within especially uh, philosophy of science today. And then uh, the last example is Michael Re from Notre Dame, uh, who is a pan-dispositionalist. Uh, so he claims, uh, again, uh, most likely referring to uh, quantum uh, physics, that uh, the fabric of the cosmos, uh, uh, what grounds the fabric of the cosmos are, are dispositions, powers, and their manifestations. Uh, um, instead of actualizations, uh, they use the term uh, manifestation today in philo meta contemporary metaphysics. So he claims that form would be just another, maybe not just, but another power uh, that uh, functions as a principle of uh, unity. And for him, there is no distinction uh, into a universal and particular uh, because powers, uh, especially those, those higher powers, they resemble both universal and uh, particulars. So having said all uh, this and uh, knowing uh, this uh, conversation within contemporary analytic versions of, uh, of hylomorphism, I think it is important for us, it would be uh, beneficial for us to go back to Aquinas and see what he says in his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics on types of unity. He says this, there are three types of unity. There can be unity uh, through arrangement of parts, secundum, unity secundum ordinem, or unitas secundum ordinem, like men in the army or houses in the city. There is a higher level of, well, he doesn't say higher, but another level of unity, uh, unitas secundum contactum et colligationem, unity by contact and bond, and he gives an example of house and its parts, but then there is yet higher level of complexity, which is a unity by an alteration of the component parts, alteratio componentium. And that would be an, an example for him would be a mixture, a compound. So I think what happens uh, in this contemporary conversation on hylomorphism is, I mean, what it covers uh, and what it refers to is A and B, but I don't think they get into C, that the deepest level of, uh, of uh, complexity that uh, the classical uh, metaphysics or philosophy uh, describes. So I argue, therefore, that C and only C requires substantial change. Uh, and what is very important for me, I claim that substantial change is always, when it happens, when one substance ceases to exist and new substance comes into existence, that it is always, uh, it happens, if, or, or what happens in those changes is that new substantial form actualizes properly disposed primary matter. Uh, so even if we see secondary matter that enters uh, a change, even if we can see virtual presence of those uh, uh, of the matter that preceded the uh, uh, emergence of new, more complex entity, uh, I believe that uh, the classical notion of uh, uh, metaphysics uh, would uh, agree with me that uh, what happens from the metaphysical, or philo philosophical and the metaphysical point of view is that uh, it is substantial change always includes substantial form actualizing properly disposed primary matter. Uh, so, and uh, again, I claim that it is true in all cases of substantial change at all levels of complexity, which is uh, not only on the, on the lowest level of complexity, whatever would be most elementary particles. And uh, we may say, okay, we cannot go lower than those elementary particles, and still we can speak about substantial change when one goes, uh, changes into another or is replaced by another. And therefore, in order to provide a principle of, of continuity, we only there introduce the notion of primary matter. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's not correct. I think the correct notion is that this notion of primary matter being actualized by substantial form in a substantial change refers to all levels of uh, complexity. Therefore, substantial form 
if this is the case, it's not a structure because structure organizes tangible secondary matter. It's not a relation because relation always includes, again, tangible uh, uh, secondary matter. A substantial form is not just another power, uh, and it's not incomplete substance, but it is a causal principle that actualizes pure potency that is properly disposed to be actualized in a given way. Uh, now, this is very controversial. This is something that contemporary uh, analytic metaphysicians wouldn't like at all. Why is that? Because if this is the case, then there is an aspect of substantial change that will always remain inaccessible to natural science because it includes purely um, metaphysical concepts of uh, primary matter, uh, which is pure potentiality, and substantial form, which is also a metaphysical principle of, uh, of actuality. Uh, and this is not something that is acceptable because for contemporary metaphysicians, analytic metaphysicians, uh, why is that? Well, uh, because uh, I believe the way they, un they understand uh, metaphysics and their task uh, is that they need to depart from uh, natural sciences and then extrapolate what natural science tells them about the universe, about particular reactions, changes, or, or what is, whatever is the um, subject of, natural, of particular brand uh, of natural science. So they claim that their task is to extrapolate, provide categories that would extrapolate what they find in natural science to uh, um, uh, a theory that will uh, be all embracing theory uh, uh, that will fit with all phenomena in the universe. Uh, and that's why, once again, uh, the idea that there is something that philosophy uh, and metaphysics can tell us about changes in the universe that will never be accessible for science is uh, something not acceptable for, accept, acceptable for them. And therefore, we find this uh, skepticism. So we, you can see we have those hylomorphists who like the idea of form, but they are very uh, skeptical and afraid of going actually back to how uh, classical uh, tradition understands form. And I think it's because of this complex uh, way, or just the way in which they defy themselves as philosophers and, and contemporary uh, metaphysicians. And that's why today there is, I think, a considerable difference uh, between what we call philosophy of nature, which is not taught at your universities, and philosophy of science, which is taught on your universities. What, uh, and one of the principal uh, differences is precisely this, that they understand, contemporary philosophers of science, that they, their point of departure is natural science. And contemporary metaphysicians, I think, feel I think uh, similar. But we don't have to be afraid of going back to those principles, uh, I believe. Uh, so we can actually go back to the notion of downward causation and uh, rethink or redefine it in reference to all four Aristotelian causes, plus a classical understanding of uh, the phenomena of chance and fortune, uh, where chance, I think, is uh, really misunderstood, especially in biology and interpretations of biology today. So when you hear, for example, uh, over and over again that uh, evolution is run by chance, it's one of the most horrible uh, claims you can ever... Mm, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's nonsense, right? Uh, but you need to know uh, uh, a little bit more about uh, philosophy of chance. And then the perfection of S. So they, uh, those categories, I believe, they enable us to redefine downward causation in terms of the new level or type of formal causation it might be accidental form, but oftentimes it is a new substantial form uh, where it, the entity of new type comes into existence. So therefore, I would uh, say that uh, we heard it several times I was uh, trying to listen carefully uh, to how scientists use the concept of emergence and those categories that I know from my studies of emergence. And it's not just in order to try to catch you on uh, being not precise because it's difficult to be precise, precise here uh, in general. But for example, when we say uh, constraints on the higher level uh, exercise causation on the lower level. What does that mean, uh, right? Uh, agents are, are entities, uh, right? So 
whenever there is an emergent uh, a property, if we want to use the category of property, it must be grounded in some sort of entity. Uh, it is either uh, a law, uh, an entity which acquires new accidental form or an entirely new entity that uh, has uh, a substantial form of a new type. Uh, then uh, we can also uh, add to this reinterpretation of downward causation a new type or level of teleological causation, where teleology here is understood as uh, being um, as a cause uh, that refers to all levels of complexity. Uh, so yes, at the level of first living cell, we have a new type or, or level of teleology, but it doesn't mean that teleology is not present on lower levels. And then we also defy, uh, or redefine downward causation in terms of new type of efficient causation. So uh, you could even say and argue with Kim and say this efficient causation, uh, even if you want to say that downward causation is efficient causation, this uh, you could argue that it is a special and unique type of efficient causation, but that is possible here on this scheme because uh, efficient causation is here grounded in the new type of accidental cause uh, form or, or new substantial form. Uh, so therefore, you cannot easily reduce this uh, new uh, efficient cause uh, to lower uh, efficient causes. And then uh, add to that, uh, to our redefined concept of downward causation, a new type or, or level of interplay uh, of determinacy and indeterminacy, uh, uh, chance and fortune, uh, and the new level of uh, existence, uh, we, if we want to accept the Thomist, uh, St. Thomas's idea that uh, S is the highest uh, perfection uh, of all uh, beings, of all entities. So this is what I try basically do in my project. Uh, and therefore, uh, I claim that uh, you can uh, refute Kim's uh, causal exclusion argument uh, when you uh, redefine downward causation in terms, once again, of the classical notion of four causes, chance and fortune, and the uh, perfection of S. Now, would that mean... Uh, so, uh, these are just my thoughts. Maybe they are completely wrong. I don't know. I was just thinking, if is is physical monism violated if we uh, think in this way that I present here? Well, one might say no additional immaterial substance is being introduced to explain complexity of material entities. I think that what, uh, uh, I think that what uh, philosophers, uh, maybe scientists as well, are afraid of is introducing uh, like some sort of weird uh, immaterial substances that uh, affect, uh, you know, uh, matter. So maybe this is not being introduced here. Is physical causal closure violated? Well, we may say no additional non-physical immaterial agents or forces like Alain Vital are being introduced, yet new types of causes are being introduced. So maybe, uh, mm, but on the philosophical uh, level of uh, inquiry. So I'm wondering whether... Uh, this physical causal closure is actually violated uh, with this scheme that I'm offering. But I don't know, I'm not sure. Uh, but what I suggest is that uh, cause uh, should be understood as principle, uh, as a category of rational explanation of what given things are, what are the principles of, uh, what, the, what the principles of their stability and, uh, and changeability are, what the principles of their activity and reactivity are, and what the nature of the processes they enter are. And that is the suggestion uh, of the re-invention uh, of the concept of uh, cause uh, today. So that, uh, I think, concludes everything, uh, what I wanted to share here. If you are interested in these topics, so for general introduction to the theory of emergence and downward causation on in contemporary philosophy of uh, science and metaphysics, I would suggest those two uh, volumes. Uh, one is the edited volume, uh, and then the other is uh, written by two uh, authors. And for the metaphysics of emergence and downward causation uh, specifically, there is uh, like 
the places where you would like to, I believe, begin your research are listed on uh, the slide as well. And there is then uh, a sea of papers, like an unending uh, proliferation of papers. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I just wanted to hear again about the precise difference between the idea of form uh, that we encounter in some contemporary homorphous as uh, power versus the classical notion of substantial form. Just to put this again in sharp relief, I didn't fully capture that distinction. Because mm -hmm. I got the idea that it's like a power, but also a principle of unity in the classical notion, but it seemed like you could just have that in some of the contemporary uh, figures as well. So I was not precisely... I was not precise on that distinction. I just wanted mm -hmm. to hear more. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, maybe, uh, maybe uh, the mm, claim or cl defining it as a principle of unity um, is proper, uh, but I think that the difficulty is that the way it is being uh, reintroduced is always... Uh, that you would have it as a power or principle that un unites uh, physical uh, objects, tangible matter, so that uh, it will be accessible for both a scientist. And so there is a, a potentiality there, but it is always, I think the lowest level you can get to would be this potentiality of, of superposition of, of, uh, of quantum uh, field. And therefore, they care so much, very much so, uh, uh, that it is accessible for, for science as well. And I think here would be the, uh, the principal difference, I think. Because the way I understand form, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, uh, again, a, a proper correlate of form uh, on the deepest level is primary matter. Of course, I can say that form, uh, you know, unites and uh, uh, physical matter. But uh, if we speak about uh, about new substance, I would always uh, argue that on the classical scheme, that goes through substantial change of those things, and this is something that they wouldn't like to accept. Uh, those contemporary hylomorphists. That's how I read them. Um, uh, thank you for your talk. Can can you explain a little bit better, or a little bit more rather, how uh, how you how your understanding um, prime matter be, being uh, that's properly disposed being actualized? Because if prime matter is for potentiality, then isn't it sort of always yes. properly disposed? Uh, yes. Thank you. So, uh, primary matter. Uh, so, what I do in my uh, interpretation and in my publications, I speak uh, about two levels of potentiality uh, in the universe, generally speaking. The uh, one, the, the uh, one level or the first level of potentiality would be the, pot the relative potentiality of uh, of uh, um, of tangible secondary matter uh, or proximate matter, right? Where things, as Father Thomas explained on the first day, they may change. There are there is a possible range of uh, uh, substantial changes uh, that this sheet of paper can enter, but it cannot enter all possible substantial changes because uh, because of the fact that uh, primary matter is uh, is disposed by the fact that it is actualized by the uh, if there is a substantial form of a sheet of paper uh, mm, okay so this is the first level of uh, relative uh, I would say uh, potentiality now Everything in the universe at the bottom level is underlined by the primary matter, which is pure potentiality, uh, which, again, as I explained on the second day, I believe it's crucial for then evolutionary theory as well, right? So uh, matter is always actual, primary matter is always actualized, and therefore the scope of next possible changes is limited, but philosophically speaking, uh, virtually all uh, logically possible uh, things can be actualized in the universe because of pure potentiality that underlies 
uh, everything in the universe. So something that is, let's say, this sheet of paper cannot enter a change, a substantial change uh, uh, that will lead to the emergence of a butterfly, uh, but it can enter a chain of changes uh, such that at some point, actually, uh, the primary matter that underlies uh, an entity that is uh, in the line of changes that, uh, that will happen will be properly disposed for a butterfly actually to come out of it, right? So, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. And this is not something that Aristotle or an Aquinas would phrase the way I do. Uh, but I think this is what this metaphysics uh, provides us with, which I think is absolutely brilliant uh, in the context of contemporary science. I think there's no better understanding of potentiality than the one that is offered in this metaphysics, basically. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Alvarez, for the talk. That was really, really inspiring. I have two questions. First of all, uh, regarding downcoming all this talking about downward causation begs the question about what about upward causation. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is the relationship between the lower levels and towards the emergent? So the thing that, you know what I mean? It's just condition, it's necessity, or it's somehow a circular condition, mm -hmm. circular causation relationship type. You mean, in, can I answer the first of that? Yeah. Uh, so you mean in already emergent uh, entity? Or because we can treat emergence uh, synchronically or diachronically, right? So do you mean that we have an emergent uh, thing and you ask what is the relationship between the downward and upward causation? Yeah. Okay. Not on the way of them emerging, but actually existing as emergent. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, I believe, uh, I mean, I don't have a clear answer to it. Uh, honestly, most of the uh, literature, if not all the liter literature uh, on emergence concentrates on downward causation based ontological emergence, speaks about downward causation. They, they occur uh, and they, 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 they speculate about it. They simply probably take upward causation for granted or think that this is the task of science to uh, describe it. Uh, so I don't have a clear answer, but I think uh, it belongs more to natural uh, science to uh, specify it. But uh, yeah, uh, downward causation more it's, it's more it maybe belongs more to philosophy, but obviously it is also uh, it engages natural science as well. But it's probably maybe a help for uh, for uh, coming from philosophers uh, where. Uh, where we offer like a framework where scientists can actually uh, understand better what they observe in uh, their science, right? Um, yeah. So there's another contemporary worry about positive and substantial forms that I see in, say, Kipfine and Chris Shield. So I'm just curious your thoughts on it. Um, I guess if we if we posit, I, I don't think there's any problem with positing forms as a cause of unity. Uh, I think contemporaries are generally comfortable with doing that. I think what they, what I think they're correct to point out is that uh, the Aristotelian view also wants to make these substantial forms efficient causes. And it would seem like once you do that, um, then the lower level phenomena just become a current phenomena. So it's, um, the escape reaction is my soul's response to my feeling of pain. And the neural states that are underlying that just become a current phenomena that we can't really explain without the soul. Um, so I think that the worry is then, does that threaten the scientist project of trying to understand these underlying efficient causal mechanisms by which neural state one really does in some meaningful way cause neural state two uh, without appealing to the soul? Uh-huh. Thank you. Hmm. Do I have um, a clear answer? It's a good question. Um, I think that it would be incorrect to say that Aristot Aristotle wants that, that he makes substantial form an efficient cause or substantial cause, uh, uh, formal cause an efficient cause. Uh, 
I, I think it's incorrect because this is, a pr again, a principle that makes a thing to be what it is in virtue of which it will have dispositions that it has. And those dispositions need to be actualized in a proper environment. Uh, so therefore, I think that fits better with the description of those levels of uh, causation in uh, you and in your uh, escape reaction to pain. Uh, but I don't know if it, maybe this is too simplistic answer to a complex question. I don't know, but that's what I would tend to think. I think it would be simply unjust to say that that formal cause is efficient cause. Uh, it would be fair to say, like, I cause my... Uh, yeah. It would be fair to say, I cause my breathing in virtue of my soul. It's not my lungs that breathe by some purely mechanistic phenomenon, right? But, I mean, I cause my, my lungs to breathe in virtue of my soul. Um, I would... Uh, my soul makes me to be what I am, and I am an entity that has a disposition to breathe. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, always the way you explain uh, things, not the other way around. Okay. For me, I mean, and yeah. I believe for Aristotle as well. One more here, and then I think we'll have we'll take our break and lead into a lot more questions afterwards. Yeah. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more towards uh, the, the notion or the arguments against having the presence of, of multiple substantial forms. Um, you mentioned that there is this way in which we can speak of relative potentiality, and that there are degrees of being and, and, and degrees of unity that come with that in ways in which there is um, prime matter that is, that is actualized and, and limits the, its potency towards further act, um, but also makes it available to us for the determination by mm -hmm. means of, of some, some greater form. Um, I, I, we've been talking a lot in the last couple of days about instances where, say, we have water molecules that are, are part of maybe a glass of water, and when they're separated, there's this weird way in which, oh, well, now they're a substance, but when they're part of the glass of water, they're, they're virtually um, substances, they communicate their powers. When in, in some sense, it seems that the philosopher, philosopher could avoid those issues by just saying that um, the water molecule has something of a substantial form to it uh, that's actualizing the matter of a lower level, a less determination, namely maybe the atoms or the molecules or the, the quantum mechanics behind it. And then they're open though, when they're in combination with these other molecules that possess this form to a further determination on a higher scale that doesn't necessarily require the, the elimination of the substantial form yeah. on a lower scale. Yeah. So what are the philosophical arguments against that view? Um, because it seems that so many Thomists yeah. are, are committed to yeah. not allowing for multiple substantial forms. Well, I think it's a good question. Maybe I would say because it, it gets schizophrenic. I mean, you cannot be schizophrenic. I mean, you cannot be, you, you cannot be, you, you would then be a, you would be then, I mean, not just two of you, just like infinitely many of you, uh, right? So I think that's the difficulty. And, uh, and those two levels of potentiality are there precisely because there is one substantial form. Uh, precisely because of that. Uh, because it, it both, uh, uh, what it does, it introduces this limit on possible uh, future uh, changes, uh, and this limitation is there, leaving this possibility uh, of like any possible change, because this is the very nature of uh, primary matter. Uh, so, so this is possible because there's just one substantial form. So it provides for both of them. Uh, so, I think that. I don't know if it answered the question, but uh, but maybe the first uh, intuition I had was better one. I don't know. I mean, you cannot. I mean, uh, you would not have this unity. If or, or maybe this way, if substantial form is the source of unity, you wouldn't have the unity, or you wouldn't have the substantial unity. You might have another sort of unity, uh, maybe accidental unity, and that allows this metaphysics allows for it. But you wouldn't have a substantial unity. I think. If you want to maybe make yeah, yeah, a sure. interjection there, I mean, just to make it a concrete case, right? So then, because um, this is, this is uh, you know, as we've seen, there are strands of scholasticism that's open to this. But at some point then, so if we talk about the human person, 
then, then my body has a substantial form, just as a physical thing. Then there's substantial form, perhaps, of the organs, or that's not exactly how they, they would have different layers of substantial form in that body. And then my rational soul would come and inhabit that body. And so we are back to, we, we are explicitly talking about literally like a ghost in the machine. Sort yeah. Of thing. So, I mean, Whereas like yeah. there's the rational soul that is moving around this thing that has already existed. And there's a, there is a, there is then a, at least from, to my mind, a separation between the, the intellectual and the material. And we're now, we're in, we're, we're introducing the mind body problem in that particular case. And I think the Thomistic answer is a better sense of, a better answer to making sense of the unity of the entirety of the human person from material all of the through intellectual. Um, and because I like that one, I wanted to fly through those. <laughs> so in one sense, I think the human person is the clearest case where now, again, there are arguments for and against that. Um, but I think that might be the place to focus in the sense of if we want to, if we want to have a holistic understanding of what the human person is, I think we need to have a unity of the notion of the human soul that goes from intellect all the way down to everything about me. Um, otherwise, we get into not just weird phys physical questions or philosophical questions, but also very strange moral questions. Um, um, so that is, I think, part of the impetus. That's one aspect of this. Thank Father Mighty for that. Thank you.